You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, we uh, continue our series on kings, and, and uh, I, you know, honestly, there was uh, um, when I had cancer in two thousand and nine. Uh, there was a short run TV show about it was a contemporary setting of the story of David and Saul, and um, it was called Kings. And I thought, man, man, the true story is so much better than this movie, than this TV series. Then, so uh, in 2009, I'm like, man, I've got to do a series on the true story of the Kings. And it has been five years in the making, and it's been in pre-production and post-production, so it took a while. Now, and it is going to be uh, something I, I'm very, very much excited about this summer. So uh, this week, we continue with uh, Saul how the mighty have fallen, the downfall. Now, I want you to take a look at this because here's kind of the background. When Moses led the children of Israel, check out this map. When Moses led the children of Israel, uh, basically the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, who's also known as, his name is also known as Israel. These 12 sons became 12 tribes of people. And they, when they claimed the land that they got to in the promised land, they basically spread out across the land. And this is kind of where they lived. They lived in these little pockets and Manasseh is in Ephraim is actually two of the sons of Joseph. And because Joseph led them, basically, uh, gave them great prominence and, and, uh, uh, and basically saved their life um, back in the day, you know, just before they became slaves in Egypt. They were given a double portion. That's why that's so large. Um, it's actually two uh, tribes that make up the two sons of Joseph. So, um, so basically, they begin to spread out across the land. Now, after 300 years of relying on God as their king, they now wanted a king. And here's the reason why. Take a look at this. The same areas now... Uh, there was conflict all over the place. There's, they got the Canaanites over here that were attacking. You got the Philistines that basically moved in to the entire land where they lived. The Philistines were occupying the land. In fact, all over Israel, the Philistines had outposts. And you're going to find that a lot of the wars that took place with Saul and David had to do with trying to take back ground at an outpost where the Philistines were at. And then they got the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and way up to the north, you don't see those cellulites. <laughs> yeah, I had to squeeze that in there. Um, and, and basically, these red spots are places of conflict. So now, all of a sudden, after 300 years of relying on God, God wasn't enough, and they wanted a king, and so they demanded a king from from the prophet who was the judge of the town, and his name was Samuel. So Samuel anointed a king, and his name was Saul. He was a Benjamite a small, from that small area uh, over there in that map. As you can see, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon became the three kings of what is known as the United Kingdom, or the uh, Great Kingdom of Israel. And then there was a civil war, and then they, they broke into two parts where there were 20 kings and 19 kings. And uh, those, those 39 kings were a mixed match of good guys and bad guys. And there was just that little three period of 120 years where they were one unified kingdom. And these three kings are the three kings we're going to look at this summer. 
And we're looking at Saul. Saul was the first. He started off great. He started off a hero. He was relying on God. He was winning battles. He was uniting the kingdom. He chased back the enemy in some of those hot spots. He was a true hero. And then things went terribly, terribly south. Check this out in 1 Samuel 13. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, that's actually a debated phrase because that one verse is translated in many different ways. And probably the most accurate in the oldest manuscripts is that he reigned 40 years, but in two years. Basically, what is about to happen, what we're about to read right now, takes place within the first two years of his 40-year reign. So let's take a look at what happens. What follows is a series of unfortunate events. And uh, basically, we're going to look at three major downfall events of Saul that's recorded in uh, Samuel. We're going to fly over him as best we can, but let the Bible tell the story because it says it better than I do. Um, the first one is about Saul's impatience, or also known as, I can't wait. So fresh off that victory in Jabesh that we looked at last week, Saul sends home some soldiers, and he goes uh, from 330,000 troops to 3,000 troops. And then the Philistines over there on to, to that side of the, off the coast, basically uh, there's this sense of constant fighting with them, and Jonathan is sick and tired. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan was a hero. Jonathan was a, was a true man of God and a warrior of faith and a, just a good son as well and a great friend, as we're going to find out uh, next week or in two weeks. And uh, Jonathan basically said, you know what, Dad, come on, man. The Philistines, you send everybody home? The Philistines are in our land. So basically... Jonathan takes some men and he goes and he attacks an outpost in uh, the hometown of, of Geba and, and basically he wins. And this is what happened. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost of Geba and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious. The word there is stench. He's basically, Israel has become kind of a smelly, stinky presence to the Philistines. The Philistines considered Israel their land. So they had these outposts all over. These like basically army brigades stationed all over Israel. Well, Jonathan's like, no, this is our land. God gave it to us. So they basically go and wipe out this, this brigade. Now, if we were, think about it, if we were on the Philistine side, okay, if we were on the Philistine side and, and there was just some community in the U.S. that decided to attack like Fort Hood or some sort of military base in Norfolk or, or wherever, and they were to, to attack some base, how do you think our government would respond? We would unleash hell and judgment on them. And that's exactly what the Philistines did because they had a twisted view of the land. And here's what happened. Check this out. Is that the Philistines reacted with an incredible amount of force. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. But no one came this time. No one came. The last time he said, hey, come on. 330,000 people showed up. This time, 
Nobody showed up. But the Philistines showed up. They showed up with 30,000 chariots and several thousand soldiers and several thousand men on a horseman. Saul is scared. The Israelites start running away. They start hiding in caves. Some of them even join the Philistine army, you know, to kind of prevent themselves from being attacked. Samuel's extremely worried, as you might. Uh, well, not Samuel, but Saul is extremely worried. And here's what Samuel said. Saul, don't worry about it. I'm on my way. Just wait seven days. In seven days, I'm going to show up. We're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And I'm going to pray to God for power, for strength, and for peace. And God is on our side. So you just, just wait. Well, this is what happened. Verse 7, Saul remained at Gagal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gagal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So it's that 3,000 that were left began to panic and they began to run away. So his army's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The Philistine army's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings himself. This is strictly forbidden from God's word. God says only a priest is to offer the sacrifice because it has to be done a certain respectful way. Just as the priest was a picture of Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect lamb who died on the cross, only he could die on the cross for our sins. Only a priest could offer the sacrifice of sins at that time. Well, Saul took it into his own hands and he did it himself. By the way, when we get impatient, we do the same thing. We tend to completely disregard God's word and and we ignore God only to serve ourselves. So verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, guess who shows up? Samuel arrives and Saul went out to greet him. Hey, man, I ain't doing nothing. But Samuel says, what have you done? This was a very, very serious offense. Now, Saul immediately began to make excuses. And I love how the Bible says, verse 13, he says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord God, uh, your God gave you. If you had kept this command, he says, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of its people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That's the first mention of the next king who is David. And by the way, David's not even born yet this point he's it's still eight years out from david's birth and god's already got a plant he goes then samuel left gilgal he was so mad and he went up to gibbo in benjamin and saul counted the men who were with him they were numbered about 600 now isn't that kind of what we do (laughs) samuel says hey you know what i'm not with you god's not with you you're on your own and i can see saul going Oh, yeah? Well, who needs you? I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, six hundred men against about a hundred thousand Philistines. I don't need you. I've got, wait a minute, where'd you go? (laughs) Because they were still running off. 
Don't we do that? When we get caught, when we get angry, when we get stressed out, you know what we do? We count. We count things. We take an inventory of our life. We get angry. We start, we start dividing up and conquering what is ours. I see it all the time. When a marriage is coming to an end, they start counting their money. They start counting their objects. They start counting their possession. They start dividing. They start taking possession of the things that they want. Whenever we're in a corner and we don't run to God, we run to the numbers. We start counting. So then the next part, that's, that was the beginning of the end. Even more so, that was the end of Saul because at that point, Samuel says, your kingdom is over. Well, a little bit later, it gets even more interesting as Saul makes a very foolish oath. And this is also, a.k.a. uh, you're a dummy. Uh, In chapter 14, basically, you need to realize that Israel was not uh, a war country. They were uh, farmers and vineyard workers, and they had no swords. They had no shields. See, the Philistines had moved into the country and they had basically taken over all the blacksmith colonies or or areas. And they basically killed all the blacksmiths or forced them to work for them so that any time an Israelite needed a shovel or needed a, uh, you know, needed a, a rake, needed some sort of plow, they had to go to the Philistines and pay the Philistines. See, the Philistines, they didn't want to get rid of Israel. They wanted to subjugate them. They wanted to force them to basically be a a way of money for them and just let them live there, but keep them under a tight control, kind of like the Romans did years later. And they had no weapons. And the only people that had weapons were Saul and his son, Jonathan. They're the only two people at this time, the Bible says it had a sword or a shield. The Philistines were ransacking towns in Israel as payback for that brigade attack by Jonathan, one after another. And now down to 600 men, Jonathan sneaks out with just one man to do something about it. He sneaks out to this little town of this military outpost. And the Bible gives this great picture in Psalm 17, of Samuel 17 of, of Jonathan climbing up this cliff, peeking over and seeing 20 men. And the Bible basically says this story is that Jonathan with this one friend of his, this one, like he wasn't even a soldier. He was his armor bearer. He was a friend who basically, you know, sharpened and shined his armor and his sword. And the two of them, jumped over the top of this cliff and in a, about a, uh, in about one acre land of space, which is not very big, about an acre to half an acre. The Bible is very clear about it. Jonathan takes out 20 soldiers by himself. Now I'm, I'm picturing, man, if this could be made into a movie, this would be like one of those cool ninja scenes, right? You know, like, you know, you know, he throws it, sticks in the guy, and he pulls it out just in time. You know, 20 guys in, in like a half acre space. Jonathan goes to town. No, no, no bow and arrow, no guns, no rifles, no machine guns, hand to hand, a sword and a friend take out, you know, 20 military men of the Philistines. He scales up the wall. Basically, he cries out for faith in God. He says, you know what? I trust God. I believe in God. If he wins, it's because of God. And if I don't, it's because it wasn't in God's plan. Jonathan has the goods, man. He was a true and a good man. He was brave. You'll see later on that Jonathan and David become very, very good friends. And you can see why. 
So God then confuses the Philistine army all over the land and the Philistines start getting scared and they start attacking each other. And then some of the Israelites that had joined the Philistine army started getting brave and they started turning on them as well. And all of a sudden the Philistines couldn't tell who was an Israelite and who was a Philistine and they all started killing each other. And all of a sudden, there was this, this momentum in Saul. Then he springs back to action. He says, come on, let's go, let's attack. Swearing to God, he says, if any man stops to eat anything until we win tonight, cursed are you and you will die at my hand. So basically, they go, come on, and they attack. And for the next 24 hours, they're fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. The Israelites, on the momentum of what Jonathan did, and Saul and his arrogance, says a very foolish thing. It says, if anyone stops to eat before the night's victory, I will kill them. Well, Jonathan, who wasn't there, the hero of this story, you know what he does? As he's going from one battle to the next, he finds a honeycomb on the ground, and he takes a snack of honeycomb, and then goes back to fighting. Well, later that night... Saul is getting really scared, and this is what happened. That night, they're all starving, and they finally get a chance to eat because they saw some victory. But Saul wants to keep on fighting through the night. He's like, all right, guys, quit eating already, and let's get back to, to fighting. And, and they're like, well, whatever you say. So they're exhausted. They're tired. They're hungry. Acting like he's with God, he builds an altar and starts sacrificing these animals Again, disobeying clearly what God says to do. And in 2 Samuel 14, 36, Saul says, Come on, let's go down and pursue the Philistines all night and plunder them till dawn. Let us not leave one of them alive. And they're like, well, do whatever you think is best. We're going to do whatever you say. Sadly, how they feared Saul more than they feared God. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. It's like, just slow down, big boy, you know, just slow down. Let's just see what God has to say. So Saul asked God, shall we go down and pursue the Philistines? He almost treated God like one of those like magic eight balls, you know, should I ask him out? Unsure. You know, that's, that's the girl asking, not a guy. It's not me asking because I wouldn't ask. Should I take my wife out on a date? Absolutely. See, that's what it would say for me. He treats God like some sort of magic eight ball. He says, shall we go down and pursue the Philistines? Would you give them into Israel's hand? Shakes the magic eight ball. But God did not answer him that day. God didn't say, I ain't talking to you, Saul. I'm done talking to you. So Saul thinks, you know, I made this vow that if, and I promised to God, that if anybody ate anything at all before the night came, then I would kill them. And surely God is angry, and that's why he's not saying anything, because somebody ate something, and somebody's going to have to die. And then God will talk to me again. So he begins to try to pursue, pursue an answer, and through a series called uh, They Cast Lot, and basically it came down to Jonathan, and Jonathan said, yeah, Yeah, dad, it was me. I had some honey. I didn't know. (laughs) Because of Saul's very foolish oath, this is what he says. Then Saul said to Jonathan, 
tell me, what have you done? So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. And Saul said, "My may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. I'm like, what? Man's out of his mind. He is out of his mind. He's, he's completely disobeying God's word. He's being kind of arrogant. He's, he's, he's seeking God for his, sincerely seeking God for himself, not for others. But even we're going to find sincerity doesn't mean anything if it's not in obedience to the Lord. We're going to talk about this in a second. But now he's got to the point where he's willing out of arrogance and pride just so that he can keep himself looking good in front of him. He's going to kill his own son simply because he made a foolish oath. Well, all of the soldiers begin to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then Jonathan, he's the hero. Jonathan is the man who led this army into this series of great events today. So Saul actually spares Jonathan, but he looks foolish. And it brings into question his ability to listen, his arrogance, his pride. And all of a sudden, you can see the soldiers begin to have a real lack of disrespect with Saul. One more quick story, then we're going to unpack what this means for us. And this is Saul's little secret, a.k.a. as you make me a gag. And you're going to know what that means here in a minute. First Samuel 15. God sent Samuel to King Saul one last time. And he says this, Samuel said to Saul, verse one, I am the Lord. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. I like this. The relationship is completely deteriorated. Samuel has to basically pull rank and say, hey, remember me? You're king because of me. You're only in that position because of the Lord's hand on me to talk to you. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't be here. So listen. He says, so listen now to the message from the Lord. He says, this is not advice. This is from the boss. Now, what we're about to read is actually some of the hardest scriptures to reconcile in the entire Bible. Uh, I don't like them. And, and, and we don't always understand scriptures that we're about to read because this is the Lord's request. And what we're about to read seems horrible, horrible, horrible. This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 2. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they laid, uh, when they weighed laid to them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites, totally destroying everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, and sheep, camels, and donkey. God commands what's known as the scorched earth policy. Sometimes it's the only way to end wars. In fact, America has very few times, we actually ended the Civil War with a scorched earth policy. We ended World War II with a scorched earth policy when we dropped the, uh, the bombs uh, in, in uh, Japan. And you might read this and go, a scorched earth from God? Really? I mean, kill everything with a heartbeat? Infants? This is very clear. Infants, children, women, men, pets, children, everything. He, I want you to notice he says, for what they did to Israel. 
Now, this is a, an interesting thing because that story is found in Deuteronomy 25 and in Exodus 17. It tells us what they did, but they knew what they did. They did not need a history lesson, uh, lesson on, on what happened because what the Amalekites did ran deep in the heart of the Israelites. Let me explain to you what they did. Is when, when the people of Israel, when the Hebrew people were coming out of Egypt, they wanted to cross through the land that was owned by the Amalekites and so they sent someone out there and said, can we just pass through? We don't want any trouble. We just want to pass through because we're just trying to get just to the other side of you. The Amalekites sent back words saying, no. And then they sent back word that said, yes. And then when they went through the Amalekites land, there was an order sent by the authorities of the Amalekites that basically said, go and kill everyone in the back of the camp. Now, you got to realize that when Israel was going from Egypt to the promised land, there was about a million of them. And at the back of the camp is where the pregnant ladies, those that were disabled, the children, the infants were, basically those that were slower than everybody else, the young, the sick, the weak. And the Amalekites came and killed every one of them. They killed every pregnant woman, They killed every child, every sick person, every disabled person, every person that was in the back of the pack, hundreds of thousands of them, the Amalekites killed them all. The Israelites went on into their promised land as given by the Lord. And God at that time said, I will judge the Amalekites and I will remove them off the face of the earth for their wicked and evil hearts. This is is justice. Now, whether you agree with this kind of justice or not, it's a hard one. Realize this, time does not erase sin. And God says it's time for the Amalekites to pay, keeping nothing back. He says, this is not a celebration. Justice is not a celebration. He says, this is not a plunder. This is not a party. This is not about prosperity. This is not about land. This is pure punishment. Don't keep anything because you're not to celebrate this at all. You're not to have anything at all for yourself. This is punishment. They are ruthless and I've had enough. This is justice. A just God who does not punish evil is not just at all. Whether you agree with this judgment or not, this was the judgment at that time. So basically Saul was given a complete and very specific order by Samuel, by God saying, go and wipe them all out. Saul heard these orders and he went and he attacked and they won. They did partially what God said. He gathered the army and he attacked. Verse seven, it says, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites alive. And as And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Hmm. So he killed everybody that God said, but he kept the king alive. But Saul and his army spared a gag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, they kept. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So they kept all these cattle and livestock, but they killed every one of those children, every one of those infants. 
total outright disobedience to the full order of God. You see, God is our king. He is to be the king. And Saul was simply to be a vice king. The one who is basically there to follow through on the orders of the royal one, God himself. And he did what so many of us do often. He says, God, I will follow you until I get to the stuff that I like. God, I will follow you until I get to the stuff that I think that is good in my own eyes. God, I hear you that I shouldn't do that or shouldn't do this, but I like that and I like this. And God, I'm going to obey you. Here's my life. Here's my heart. But this, this is my, this is my agag. This is my little corral of, of livestock that I like God and I'm going to keep them. I'll keep my corral of what looks good. See, we can easily obey with the stuff we don't like. But when it comes to honoring God with the things that we like, you know, that we want to keep, it becomes very difficult. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel went back home to Ramah. And this is what the word of the Lord said. I am grieved that I have made king, uh, that I've made Saul king. God is not saying he made a mistake. The, this is called an anthropopathism. Basically, this means that God was extremely unhappy with the actions of Saul. This was an attempt for the writer to put into human emotions the severity of what God was feeling at the moment or his thoughts on this experience. He says, because he turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night long. So Samuel laid in bed all night and cried over this. All night crying. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul had gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So here's Saul. He's like, man, look what I've done. Woo, man, we took out the Amalekites. So he goes to this giant, very significant mountain where basically it's a place of worship for a lot of different types of pagan religions at the time. And he climbs to the top of this mountain and he makes a monument to himself. Not to God, not to honor any, to himself. This mountain was known to be a place of pagan worship. And he puts himself on the pedestal as the victor here. He put a monument of himself. He went from why me to look at me like that. Look what I did. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, man, the Lord bless you. Man, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Right? So here comes Samuel. Samuel! Yeah, man. Hey, we got a chance. I'm going to take you to show up on my monument. It is sweet. Man, man, the Amalekites were all over the place. They were crying. And we said, no way. It was great, man. We did exactly what the Lord said. And I love this. But Samuel says, uh, what then is that bleeding of sheep in my ears? Uh, really? Then what did I just step in? Um... What is that lowing of cattle that I hear? You think you're hiding things from God, but you're not. He says, Saul answered, well, you know, the the soldiers, those guys, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared only the best, the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What arrogance. Notice your God. Man, this reveals his heart. But we totally destroyed, man, we totally did everything else. 
We totally did everything else. So he begins to make excuses and he says, man, I'm just going, I'm just going with the flow. It's what they wanted. We did it for, we did it for the Lord. This is for Jesus. I'm going to, you know, it's like when when there's a a young person that's dating a person that's not a Christian and you know, God's word is kind of clear that you don't want to be emotionally connected with someone that's not a believer because they're going to take you in a different direction spiritually with God. But we look at it and go, you know, I'm going to do this for the Lord because I'm going to evangelistically date them. I'm going to do this for Jesus. Give me a big kiss. This is, let's kiss for Jesus. But really what we're doing is we're pursuing our best interest. And I love this very clearly. He just says, stop. Just stop it. In verse 16, stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul says, tell me. Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, remember when you thought that you were nothing? Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war until they have been wiped out completely, until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why? He did 98%. He says, why did you do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul interrupts, but I did obey the Lord. But I, I did. But I did. We, we get this all the time. You know, we, we think that we're just, we think we're cool with God because, you know, God's, he's, he's cool. God, you're cool, right? You're cool with me. I'm going to do what I think I can do. And then the rest, I'm just going to, you know, I know you're going to let it pass because we're cool, right? Right? God, we're good. This is what Saul's attitude is. He said, man, he was, but I did. I did obey God. I obeyed the Lord. I went on the mission of the Lord. He assigned me. And man, I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. I did. I killed everybody but this guy. Uh, The soldiers, well, they're the ones, he said, they took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God got all spiritual in order to sacrifice him to the Lord, your God, Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Some of the translations say rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Basically says what you've done is no different than complete rebellion against God. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You cannot bargain with God. Obedience is a reflection of our heart. Our actions mirror our heart's desires. And if we say, Jesus, we love you. You see, that's why Jesus said, if you love me, Jesus said, you'll obey my commands. That doesn't mean that we get God's love through obedience. No, it says, if we love him, the response will be that we will willingly obey because we don't want to do anything that might come between us and God. See, God doesn't find uh, our obedience something that will make him love us more. That's not what he's saying. When you're a good person, when you're a good guy, a good girl, when you, when you do things right, God doesn't go, oh, man, I'm just so proud of you. I just love you more. Come here. God doesn't love you more. 
It's saying that, but when we love Jesus, when we give our heart to Christ, the response is obedience. That's what he's saying here. Our actions mirror our heart's desires. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Well, that sounds good. But then he says, I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. So either he's a terrible leader or he's a big fat liar. And either way, doesn't look good for him. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. He says, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Samuel, Samuel said, wait, 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 don't go, don't go. Go out and worship with me so that everybody can look and see how great a guy I am. Because if you leave now, they're going to think, man, Saul blew it. What's up with Samuel, man? Why did he leave? Why, why did he bail you? We think like this is like party, right? So he says, don't go, come and worship so that I can look good. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Samuel coughed the hem of his robe and he tore it. Samuel's like, I'm done. And he starts to walk. And Saul's like, no, 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 no. And he grabs the hem of his garment and he rips it. I can just hear everybody in the room going, he did not just do that. He grabbed Samuel's robe. He ripped He's like, wait, wait, wait. Samuel said to him, man, he says, get your hands off my clothes. No, he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He says, man, just like you tore my clothes, you have been torn apart from God. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God told you that if you did not follow him and rely on him, that you would be removed. God is not a liar and he does not change his mind. Then Samuel said, bring me a gag, king of the Amalekites. And a gag came to him in chains. And he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. Is what a gag was thinking. Surely they're not going to kill me, right? But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put a gag to death before the Lord of Gilgal. It's like, bring a gag. And he says, you know what? Just like you killed everybody and you left a lot of mothers childless, your mother's going to be childless. And he stabs a gag right on the spot, drops it, drops the mic and walks out. This was the last time that Saul ever got a visit with Samuel. Samuel went home to Ramah and he mourned over this for the rest of his life because he loved Israel and he knew that God loved Israel. Over the next 40 years, Saul fights the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, and the Cellulites. His entire days, the Bible says, were filled with blood and war. That was the legacy of Saul. So real quick, what are some things that we can get from this story before we go? Here's the first thing this, from the man who would be king, is that you can't outweigh God. You can't outweigh God. Saul grew tired of waiting, as he often did, and he ended up doing his own thing. He grew tired of waiting on God. He did not uh, want to trust and rely on God. And, and by the way, 
Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. And guess what day he showed up on? The seventh day. Samuel was not late. God was not late. But you know what we do? God says, just hold on a minute. Just wait. Those of you that are single, just wait for the right person. Just wait. Those of you that are married and you're having marital problems, God says, just wait on me. Just hold on. Just wait on me. Those of you that, that rush into buying houses or cars or things you can't afford, God says, just wait. Just slow down. Just wait on me, right? Those relationships that, that, that you're ready to implode on or relationships that, that you should implode on, God, God says, you know what? Just, just wait. Just, just wait on me. Just wait. God, I'm not hearing anything. Just wait on me, God says. Just wait. God is never late. God is not. If he's put something in your heart, for your family, for your marriage, for your life. And, and all you hear is just wait. God's not going to be late. You can't outweigh God. See, Saul had a serious issue with waiting on God. It was, it's, a, it's a lack of trust. God has taken too long. I got to move on this. Emergencies are no excuse for disobedience. His excuses... His best intentions did not make up for his lack of trust. This was not just the beginning of the end. This was the end of Saul. Here's the second thing in the story is that foolish ambitions lead to foolish results. Remember that stupid oath, that foolish oath he made that almost got his son killed when he said, I'm going to kill anyone that eats before tonight's victory. And Jonathan simply takes a snack of a honeycomb off of his staff and Jonathan is now facing off with his dad and his dad's about to kill him because of his foolish ambitions for more and more and more. He was willing to sacrifice his son. His arrogance and his pride was such that he was willing to kill his own family. Foolish, hasty, impatient, unteachable, prideful, and arrogant. Sometimes we are so driven to achieve and to accomplish that we put unrealistic expectations on others like Saul And our family and our marriage suffers. I see it all the time. A pursuit of a career, a goal, a money, a cash, or whatever. And your your pursuit of a dream or, or your pursuit for great accomplishments puts unfair expectations on those around you. And I see it all the time. Relationships are killed forever. A son that grows up without knowing his mom or his dad because they're always at work or they're never around or that drove a family to divorce. Foolish ambitions lead to foolish results. Number three, this story tells me that partial obedience is complete disobedience. Saul got most of it right. Man, this should count for something, right? I mean, if you took a test and you got 98% of the test right, man, you think God would give you a high five, right? But this was, not, this was not a test. This was a command. Great intentions do not make up for clear disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22, he says, Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can't bargain with God. You can't say, well, you know what, God, I'm going to disobey you on Saturday night, but I'm going to show up to church on Sunday morning, and I'm going to give you my all. But I'm going to live like hell on Saturday night and on Friday night, but Sunday you're mine. I'm going to be, be, a, be a pretty good person Monday through Friday afternoon. But when Friday comes, partial disobedience is complete disobedience. Is God impressed if you're reading the Bible but disobeying what he says? 
Is he impressed when you show up at church and sing songs but have a little chorale of your disobediences at home? Does your sacrifice of time really matter if you're not seeking the honor of it for the Lord, but you're actually doing it for yourself? Saul knew clearly what was said from the Lord, and he chose disobedience. We have the word of God. And I think we sometimes do the same thing. We read through the God's word or we know what God wants from us. And we go, uh, but God, in this area, I know better. I know the Bible says that, you know, I should wait till I'm married. But, you know, God, <laughs> I really like this person a lot. And we're going to get married someday, maybe. So um, I'm going to love you over here with 98% of my life. But this 2%, Lord, um, well, that's I'm going to keep that. Clear disobedience. We do it with love, with sex, with marriage. We do it with money. We do it with how God says that we are to trust him with our finances, but we hold back that which is the Lord's because we just don't trust him. And so we clearly disobey what he says. You see, guys, remember, this is not about perfection because we can't be perfect. God is more concerned with our direction than our perfection. Let me explain I don't want you to leave here thinking that you have to be perfect because there's a no way is God saying that we have to be perfect. This is not about that. We see in the next King David, he made a ton of mistakes. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He was a, he struggled with being a good father. And he was, uh, he was a person, however, that the Lord liked because even though his mistakes were huge and he had a crazy family, he had a broken and teachable heart and was willing to fall on his face before God and seek the heart of God, even when he made mistakes. He didn't continue in them. He allowed them to be catalysts for change in his life. Acts 13, 22 says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He would do everything I want him to do. See, David, God, forgive me, lead me, teach me, correct me. Saul's response was, God made me look bad, so now you better make me look good. They did it, God. I did what I thought was best, but I had good motives. God, you don't understand how much this means to me. See, Saul and David's response were completely different. See, we all fail, but our goal is, God, teach me how to learn from this and to move on in a new direction. Let my mistakes propel me in God's direction. Here's uh, the fourth thing, is that monuments to self are a sure sign of a hard heart. Saul climbed that hill and built a monument to himself to say how great he was. We do the same. We do very similar things. We say and think that we're following God, but the monuments are there, boasting of our greatness. They reflect on a hard heart that we have inside. We show up, we have perfect attendance in our small group, but it's not to know God, it's to glory in the monument of how awesome we are. Or we show up, we volunteer, we do all these things that God wants us to do, but we don't do it to testify the Lord. We do it to make ourselves feel better and to make ourselves feel more important. And we do exactly what he did. Saul's heart was so hard that he could not even see his own sin. He couldn't even see it. Saul did not even take his sin serious. And he was often even at times proud of what he did. We're like, hey, what's the big deal? Because we've made monuments out of our lives. 
That monument was a declaration that he was in charge. And it's when those actions, they begin to change who we are and just thinking, I can do this. I got me this far. I got me this job. I got me this family. I got me this money. I got me this position. I got me this role. And, you know, I'm looking how great I, you know, these are monuments and they detect heart problems. Here's the last thing I want to end with this is that blatant disobedience can be hidden behind three very important things that we see in the story. Number one, blatant uh, disobedience can be hidden behind sincere worship. Saul had all the God talk you could put together and he knew how to build an altar and sacrifice animals. He knew how to say the Lord and, you know, and praise God. And he sang the songs, but even in his praise, his God talk, he had corrals and monuments that were still there because even his sincere worship was hidden behind disobedience. Number two, religious activities. Saul did the sacrifices. He knew the system. Uh, Man, I go to life team. I give, I volunteer, but the corral and the monuments are there. Blatant disobedience can be hidden behind the third thing. Is that his good motive? Saul says, man, I'm doing this for the people. I'm doing this so that we can, you know, worship God better. God will understand. It's what they wanted. It's a win-win for everybody. Our disobedience can be hidden behind uh, even good motives. So what's in your corral? What monuments have you built? This is what I want to end on this thought today. I have this stool here, and I want this stool to represent the throne of God for a minute because this is what we like to do. We like to sit on the throne of our life and make ourselves king. I am king of my life. God, I'll lip service you, talk about you, refer to you, put Facebook posts about you, and and I'll even buy the mugs and, you know, go to camps or, or go to church. And, you know, I'll put a little little plaque in my house. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'll put a couple of crosses. But really, God, I am the king of my own domain. And this is how we sit, somehow thinking that God is pleased. And just like Saul, we are completely deceived about our hard an ugly and distorted heart. See, this is where God wants us to be. He wants us to be on our knees, acknowledging him as the Lord of our life, face to the ground, humbly acknowledging him in our work and in our family, in our marriage, in our home, getting ourselves off the throne of our life and getting ourselves on the face before God. God is a jealous God. He is to be king. He is to be king. We are here on our face to submit to his rule. He says, I formed you. I created you. I bought you with the death of my son. You are mine. I am your king. But we cover up our disobedience with all sorts of excuses. But God sees through it all. Will you let me stand here today as a Samuel in your life? with not a declaration that God has done with you, but rather with a declaration that God is still calling you. See, the beauty of this is, is that just as being religious does not erase past sins, being religious also does not erase current sins. But that's where Jesus steps into the picture. 
That's where Jesus, the ultimate king, he came down to earth. He kicked the dirt up. He, the very earth he created was in his toes. He walked and breathed the very air that he thought of. And he died on the cross. You see, God that doesn't demand justice and doesn't punish justice is not a just God. And Jesus was the justice was the justice of God to anyone that will acknowledge that justice. You will be free if you submit to the king. So Saul and Samuel part ways and God is silent with Saul for the rest of his life. Saul remains on the throne for a full 40 years, 38 years without hearing God. He falls into rage, depression, Anxiety, insanity, murder, and eventually the occult and suicide. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the rise of a new king named David. And we're going to see the ultimate demise and the fall of a man that could have been a great king. In the next chapter, 25 years after this event, Samuel anoints a new king. He rides up to a little Circle J ranch to see a man named Jesse. Verse 1 of chapter 16. I'm going to end with this and we're going to pray. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to, the, to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. A dad with a house full of brothers who were warriors God picks a 15-year-old shepherd boy to be a new king. And this one ends up being the greatest the world has ever known. His name is David. Next week, you're going to meet David. Let's pray. God, as Samuel stood before Saul and warned of his hard heart and blatant disobedience. God, I pray that the spirit of the Lord came upon our people today and that they heard your voice as well. God, if there's anyone here in blatant disobedience, God, I pray that you'd let them know they can find grace and mercy at the feet of the cross where their punishment has been paid for and they can be free and clean and forgiven right now at this very moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I want you to search your heart for a second. What are the monuments in your life that you've built to glorify yourself? What are the things in the corral that you're keeping that you know God says you should get rid of? What is that one thing? What is the agag in your life that you are just convinced God would understand? God wants everything everything or he has nothing if we sit on our throne he's not there father forgive us of our disobedience and our rebellious heart God I pray that you'd help us to not live the life of Saul of what could have been God I see a lot of people who could have been a great of the hardness of their heart 
mighty head fall. Help us, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. And as I said in my prayer a minute ago, is I've been in ministry for um, in some capacity for over 30 years. And I've seen people that could have been so much in the kingdom. Young men and women who who had a fire for God, who grew up to be just people who wanted nothing to do with it. And I've seen adults who made a declaration of faith and started getting on the right path and only to let pride and arrogance and the cares of this world distract them. And I think, oh, what could have been? And I think of Saul. What could have been? He says, man, I... God would have made you a great king and your throne would last forever. But no, what could have been because of your hard and disobedient heart. Don't be a soul. Be humbled, be broken. Listen to the word of the Lord in your life today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.